0: And could we please have Eileen read the 12 steps of OA? And we have to unmute you Eileen. Sorry. There we go.
1: All right. Thank you. Hi I'm Eileen. Comb <laughs> over eater vomitor. Grateful to be here. The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food. Our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made the decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, fact, nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked Him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it.
0: I muted myself, (laughs) sorry you guys. After after all this time, it's still hard to stay on top of that. Um, Manya, could you please read the 12 traditions?
2: Hi, I'm Manya, compulsive overeater. 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse finance or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise. Less problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary spiritual aim. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, overeaters anonymous should remain forever non-professional at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thanks for allowing me to serve.
0: Thank you so much. And I'm just going to uh, state one more time what the uh, meeting is, because apparently I went a little too fast. Um so this is the June 6th, this is for the recording. This is the June 6 meeting, growing my faith and strengthening my spirituality. Uh, thank you for that, Laura. Uh, seventh tradition. According to our seventh tradition, we are self-supporting through our own contributions. We send all contributions in excess of our expenses directly to the World Service Office. Uh, to help carry the message to other compulsive eaters. Our meeting expenses are a large meeting Zoom subscription and the OA Rise website, which includes the cost of extra storage so that we can upload the speaker recordings for you. Uh, contributions can be made by PayPal to our email address, which is info at OA.org, sorry, oarise.org. Info at oarise.org. And there's also a contribute now button at oarise.org. And I am posting that. Okay, and um, now it is my great pleasure to introduce our speaker for today, Melissa, um, who will be sharing on today's topic, and I am now turning it over to you, Melissa, and I'm just thrilled that you're here. Thank you for coming and doing this service with us today. Oh,
3: thank you. Thank you so much, Sherry. Thank you, everybody, at, uh, at this meeting for inviting me to come. It's it's a real pleasure to be here. i um, I'm gonna start off, let me just share my screen. My name is Melissa C. I am a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York. Um, I always like to start off um, with pictures, with, um, with the qualification. And I, I, the reason I show my pictures, and if you've seen them endlessly and tirelessly, it's a visual representation of first of all, where this disease had me. Which is perfect for this topic because it it tells me, um, and hopefully you, why I must have a spiritual experience, right? Why someone like me requires an act of providence, a miracle of healing, and um, and I like to show my pictures because it's a demonstration of the miraculous that happened to me, right? Not by me. Um, And I love looking at pictures of me like this because I have, uh, you know, it's me, right? They're all me. And I have compassion for the woman that was walking around in over 300 pounds. Um, I was in a lot of pain. I wasn't a bad person. I wasn't a weak person. Um, I was still a kind, good, loving person underneath there. um, But I I was in bondage to the food, I was owned by this addiction. Um, and so I, yeah, so I show my pictures and so here's me, right? The first, you know, this first one, um, I had just given birth to my daughter. She's, um, I'm just gonna set my timer. I just realized I did not do that and I like to set it. So my daughter there um, is, uh, she was just born. She's 20 now. And um, I swore that I was gonna lose the pregnancy weight. Like I had every good reason to lose it. I had a new baby. I had a husband I loved. I had all the the wonderful qualities that should lead me to a good life. And I thought certainly I was gonna, you know, kick this food problem. And then, well, clearly I didn't because here I am my daughter's older, and I got larger, right? And I consistently battled this, like back and forth, and back and forth. And so, you know, here's me with my husband. We went out to dinner. We would go out to dinners often. That's how we, that's how we socialized. That's how we connected. That's how we relaxed and unwound. And um, most of the time, I could not sustain um, eating anywhere. In, in, um, in respect to a food plan when I went out to eat. It was, it was just too difficult for me. Um, I was always, I would start off well-intended and then invariably I would eat something and I could not remain, um, you know, I don't know if I was even abstinent or making an attempt to be abstinent there, but certainly I could not eat in agreement with the way that I knew was best for me. And I continued to gain weight through the years. This is me in the red, there was a party at my house that day. And um, I, you know, just so you know my background a little bit, I've, I'm one of five siblings and I've grown up with a mother. One of, my, one of the things like about my mother um, is my mother taught us, taught me to always put my lipstick on. Just put your lipstick on, put your, just Like no matter how bad I was feeling, if I was crying and something was bothering me, my mother would say, oh, honey. Why don't you go put a little lipstick on, you know, and that was going to like magically whoosh, you know, um, like really just paint a smile on your face and hold it together. And she meant well, she really did. It was probably very painful for her to see me like that. And I could not put a little lipstick on at this point. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't get, and and there was a party at my house that day, and I don't think I barely brushed my hair. You know, for me, this disease takes me to a spot where basic hygiene becomes difficult. It becomes hard for me to summon up the the caring, the ability to put myself together. Um, You know, I came to Overeaters Anonymous again, because I had come years before, and here I am on vacation. And this is an important part of my story because I had been abstinent. I was working a plan of recovery. I was actually making some progress in my recovery. I went away. First, I went to Disney World with my husband and the kids. And then we took the kids from Disney to my mom's. And my husband and I continued and took like this lovely little vacation together. And I, I I drank there, I picked up an alcoholic drink, which for me is a gateway. I drank, it's like, it's like you might as well just point me right to the food. I can't do one without the other, I just can't. And, and I knew that, by the way, I knew that because I had had experience with that before, um, which is why I need a miracle because my knowledge is not sufficient power. Knowledge about what's problematic for me is not enough to keep me in check. So what I did on this wonderful vacation was I said, I think I'm gonna have a drink. And I binged from that, from that drink, it was 10 months before I stopped binging. Like I couldn't, I just couldn't. I could once the, like, what is it? Once the tiger's out of the cage, once the cat's out of the bag, I couldn't get it back together again. Um, You know, and so that was me on and on through the years, up and down and up and down. Um, Here's me, you know, at a, a social gathering for work. I had lost some weight. Here's me when I had my son. My son now is 14 and I wanted him desperately. Like he came, I had my daughter, and then we had a number of horrific losses in between our two children and i wanted him more than anything. in fact i was kind of convinced even though i've always been a compulsive overeater i thought having this miracle baby was going to be the secret that was going to get me abstinent get me healthy again i had everything you know now i had everything. and in this state i was over 300 pounds uh, that leopard that leopard sweater was about what fit me Clear. I'm at a party again, cause there's a point you could tell there's a party blower in my husband's mouth I think it's New Year's. I could barely hold my son. And that just broke my heart. I just couldn't physically get my arms around him to hold him to me because my size made it difficult to hold him. And he was extremely active. <laughs> he was a kid who was running at nine months and I would cry because I couldn't keep up with him. I It was like, I would beg him to stop, right? Begging your child to stop walking, to stop moving. I really just didn't want him to walk yet. I wasn't ready. Um, you know, down below, this is me with my sisters. I, I live, I have a very large family. I have sisters and sister-in-laws and nieces and nephews. And there's a, there's a lot of us. My sisters and my sister in laws. Uh, they loved me. I, I'm lucky. I'm blessed. I have a family. We love each other. We really love each other. But in the throes of this disease, I'm not, I'm not available to be loved. I'm just not available. I would come to social gatherings in my pocket, a list of all the things that they've ever done wrong to me. And it would go back till we were like three, right? Everything. I had like a memory of an elephant for everything they ever did to me. And by the way, that same memory of an elephant, I couldn't remember a thing that i had ever done to them. You know, in my memory, I'm a saint and they're the ones who did all sorts of things to me. And I would be at these social gatherings. I would have to drink a lot and I have to eat a lot. And sometimes I'd have to eat so much that I was, I would be in the bathroom, because I was, I was embarrassed by how much I needed to eat. And so here I am at a family gathering with candy and cookies and food in my pocket and I'm eating in the bathroom instead of being available, being connected and attached to the people that love me. Um, you know, this picture above, this is me and my mom, um, me in, this, in the gray dress with my mom. And um, that's actually a happy occasion because, although my body hadn't caught up yet, I was recovered at that point. So I was living free of the food. This was at a um, my daughter's boss mitzvah. I made a beautiful affair for my daughter, um, with a full cocktail hour, open bar, uh, tons of food that I was paying for. My husband and I were paying for, and I was entirely abstinent. Like, and um, I mean, there was even a room for dessert like an entire room donated for dessert. And I didn't it nothing there called my name and in fact what thrilled me that day was how I was actually able to be present and enjoy the company of the people that I was that I was hosting, right? That is a miracle of healing. That's something God did for me because I've been I had been abstinent or dieted at social functions before. I would be pissed because nothing would be going wrong. Everything would be going wrong. No one would be doing it my way. I could, I would see everybody's flaws and, and I would be mad that they were eating and I couldn't, it would really It would piss me off. It would get me really angry. Um, you know, and then, um, but I didn't have that experience that day at my daughter's that's mitzvah. I actually was available and enjoyed the day fully, fully present. Um, down below, here's me with my kids. I was on my way to recovery. I was already, you know, I was working this program, um, but it took a while for my body to catch up. And here's the good news, right? Here's me. <laughs> And what's really cool about that, I'm wearing this yellow dress. Um, I was looking at the date because I was like, when did I, how old is that dress? The dress is four years old, um, which is miraculous for someone like me. And, um, and I knew it fit. I didn't have to try it on before. Um, it's a summer dress that I enjoy wearing. <laughs> and I just go in my closet and I put it on. And that happened to me, not by me. Um, you know, yesterday I spoke and I wore this dress, the black one. And that was like super cool too. Um, that everything in my closet fits. And, and I just know that. I just know that. That's to me a physical demonstration of a miracle. And so, you know, I want to tell you, I, I'm really certain that I was born with this disease of compulsive eating. Um, my first words were more. That's what I was told, that that the first things that came out of my mouth was the word more. And it was in relation to my bottle. And my siblings would feed me bottle after bottle after bottle all night. Um, And my mom said that they would wake up in the morning and find a collection of bottles all on the floor um, outside my crib. And, um, And I always actually remember experiencing food differently than my siblings do. I just always hungered for more. Nothing ever felt enough, you know? And, and I came to Overeaters Anonymous hoping to have the why question answered. I really wanted you to tell me why I was like this. And, you know, in the, in, in the chapter, there's a solution. It, it tells us that opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. We are not sure why once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. We cannot answer the riddle. So um, a big mistake that I made was spending too much time investigating, answering this riddle and not investigating a spiritual connection. Because when I ask why, really what I'm saying is I don't like it. Make it different. And, and truthfully, you know, um, when I ask why, I'm hoping that I can assign blame on someone else and remove all responsibility for my own actions. And that's the truth. And really when you ask why, most of us, what we really hope to blame is our parents. Like that's who I wanted to blame. Really wanted my mother and father to take, take ownership to somehow wear this, that this was their fault. And here's the truth, right? Um, My parents made a ton of mistakes, okay, just like me, just like me, and um, thank God for the steps because I'm not resentful of any of the mistakes they made today. They did the best they could. My parents loved me, and by the way, if if you're here and you're pretty sure that your parents did something to you that caused this, and maybe you're not as fortunate, maybe you're not the product of loving parents, maybe they really were cruel. Right? Maybe there was some cruelty underneath there. Unless you're going to go back in a time machine, there's nothing we're going to be able to do about it, but accept it. And now, and now do something about it. My problem was, I'm 52 years old. And if I'm still blaming mom and dad and not taking action, I'm in big trouble. At some point I have to just have acceptance and move forward. And that's really what this is, right? So for me, you know, my earliest memories are food-related. Um, I, I tell this story that my my um, we would always get this beautiful cake on Friday nights. My mom would bring, you know, would would wait online. We lived near a famous bakery in the area in New York, and my mom would wait online on Fridays because she loved us so that she would buy this cake for the family. And Friday night, my mom would take the cake out. And before my first piece was cut, I knew it wasn't enough. That's how I experienced food. You know, my, it's funny, because recently I spoke with my husband and I said, you know, all my early memories are food related. And I thought maybe that's what an identification for a compulsive overeater was. And he said, yeah, Melissa, my early memories are all food too. And I was like, really? And he said, yeah, and he started telling me the stuff his mom baked and his grandma and this and that. And then I realized that's not what makes me a compulsive overeater. My earliest memories of food weren't enjoyable memories. They were memories where I didn't get enough. No matter how much was given to me, I never got satisfaction. That's, that, that's my early memories of food. And so what happens for someone like me who comes from loving parents who wanna be helpful and, and a mother who tells you to put lipstick on, right? Appearances are really important. Um, I was put on a diet at a really young age and and, and they tried to moderate me and, um, and they meant well, they meant well, but what it did was, um, I learned really early on how to sneak food. I could get to the fridge in the dark from a young age. I could open the refrigerator just to crack so the light wouldn't come on. You know, I knew which floorboards creak. I knew where the sponge was that I could wipe it up. I did all sorts of things to try to cover up what I did. And, you know, I would go to the kitchen and I would cut slice after slice after slice of this cake. And I knew it was wrong. See, the act knows right from wrong. It's not that I didn't know that it was wrong to to go to the refrigerator and take what was really supposed to be for the rest of the family too. I just didn't have the ability to live within the boundaries of right and wrong. What I needed trumped everything. It pushed all logic aside. I had to get my fix. So, you know, some mornings Saturday mornings, my family would be like scrambling around looking for the cake. Because sometimes I ate the whole cake in the middle of the night. That's the truth. And everybody would be mad at each other and yelling and blaming each other. And I would lay in bed on Saturday mornings, guilt ridden, like guilt ridden, not wanting to come out of the bed, not wanting to face the music. And the crazy thing is, I did it again the next week. How's that? Right, I just repeated that same, and it was all sorts of behavior like that, but that was my experience with food. You know, I grew up with a lot of, uh, you've had enough, you've had enough, right? Um, And it never worked for me. You know, I I would steal my my brothers, uh, one of my brother's wives, someone asked her a few years ago, Does, does my brother's name is Wayne, one of them, and they said, does Wayne still hide cookies under his bed, and she was like, no, what are you talking about, and they said, oh well because Wayne always hid the cookies, whenever there was cookies in the house he hid them under his bed, and everybody had a good laugh about it, and I realized, yeah my brother doesn't need to do that anymore, because he doesn't live with me. My brother did that because he never got any cookies. Otherwise, he didn't do that because he was greedy. He did that because he was smart, you know. And when and when the food thief is no longer in his house, he didn't have to do that anymore, right? And that's the way that I that I experienced food in my life, you know. When I was fourteen, um, well, I'll tell you. Before that, at ten years old, I went on Weight Watchers, and really, my mother put me on Weight Watchers, and it worked beautifully because um, if you don't require a spiritual experience and you have sufficient desire, you can actually go on a diet and they work. Every single diet works. If you limit your caloric intake, right? You take in less and you move more, you lose weight. And 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 I was, you know, at that point, my mother, um, my mother put me on Weight Watchers and my mother was in charge of the food. So I was on Weight Watchers and I lost weight and I got thin and life was wonderful. And then I was 14, all of a sudden now I'm 14 and I decided that I wanted to lose a little more weight. I thought I was chunky and I wasn't chunky. Um, Now, when I look back at pictures, I'm like, I was normal. I think I was developing. I think I was starting to like really get a shape and develop and I didn't like it. So I went on a really strict diet and I basically restricted and starved. And I lost, I got very skinny, very fast. And I got a lot of attention. It felt awesome. People were like, there's something about a super skinny rail thin girl that gets attention. They just do. You know, I look at those pictures now and I'm like, I don't think I was any prettier when I got rail thin than I was when I had like, when I was, you know, right before then. What happened was um, I got really skinny and I enjoyed it. It was awesome. There was nothing. It was no, nope. I wasn't sabotaging myself, but I came home one day and there was something in the freezer and I decided to eat it. And that was it. It was like, from the time I was 14 to the time I graduated high school, I gained a hundred pounds. And that, you know, the amount of attention I got when I got skinny, now I got all this negative attention. And it was awful, it was humiliating. You know, people said that people are not nice. People are cruel. Teenage boys are mean. You know, I I would overhear. I remember being on the bus and I heard these two boys talking about me, you know? and, And they didn't see me, right? I was sitting behind them. They didn't see me, but I heard them talk about me. And they said, what happened to her? She was so cute. Now she's got a great big fat ass. I mean, that's what they said. And they were talking about me and it was horrible. And the worst part was, my stomp was before them. And I actually had to get off the bus and walk past them, knowing that they knew, you know, it wasn't, so here's the thing, right? It wasn't so painful that I heard it. What was really painful was that now I knew, they knew I heard it, right? That was like doubly painful. And why do I need God? Because humiliation didn't work either right? You would think crushing, painful humiliation would have done something. And it didn't. It didn't. It just, in fact, when you're, when you're completely humiliated and you've got a food addiction, you eat more because nothing soothes the pain of, of humiliation as an extra bite, right? Nothing so much. Um, You know, I tried every scheme. I want to tell you every single scheme. You know, anything money could throw at it. If, and by the way, here's, here's the truth about someone like me. If it cost a lot of money and it, was, it, and it sounded ridiculous, I was all in. The more expensive, the more insane, the more happy I was to throw all my faith into that. Right? I was like, oh, it's got to work. It's crazy. It's crazy, right? Um, It's expensive and it's crazy, so it's got to work. And so what does that mean, right? In More About Alcoholism, on page 30, it says, our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. And I was just obsessed with it, right? Of that someday I was gonna, someday I was gonna get a handle on this. You know, when I graduated from college, I was 280 pounds. My life was a mess. It really just felt like out of control, a mess. And I had friends, and my friends were having success. You know, they were getting married, they were having babies, they were getting good jobs. And I felt like I couldn't do anything because food was calling all the shots. And I decided at that point, well, I went to OA accidentally. You know, somebody, somehow I got to an OA meeting. And at that meeting, I found out some important information. I found out about an allergy. Um, You know, I was given, here's here's what happened. I was given a big book and um, and I was also given a food plan. Now, I took that food plan and I worshiped it. Abstinence was God to me. That's what I worshiped. And the food plan was the religion I practiced to get me close to God, right? And I was also given a big book, but I took the big book and I shoved it in a drawer. So I did not embark on a spiritual path, not at all. I just looked at Overeaters Anonymous as a really great diet plan. And here's what happened. Um, it worked. It worked initially. What was I looking to achieve? I wanted weight loss. And I had a lot of um, incentive. Uh, I, wanted, I wanted what my friends were having. I wanted to meet a man. I wanted to get married. And I wanted a good job. And that's what happened for me. I, you know, I met my husband. I got I got my teaching career and and thankfully I've been doing it for 20 I'm in mean my 23rd year of teaching um, or 24th year I don't know but it's a while I've been doing it and um, and everything was great right I was thin my husband met me I was thin and what happened right because remember I didn't have a relationship with God I had a relationship with abstinence that's what I had a relationship with. And um, well, there's two stories that explain what happened to me, and both of them are in more about alcoholism on page 32. It starts with the like, like the man of 30, right? And it talks about staying dry. He stayed dry for 25 years. I mean, that means he was like for our terms, he was entirely abstinent, right? He was completely abstinent. And for me, it was more like five. I was abstinent. I followed that food plan like uh, unbelievably, right? And then I fell victim, which practically every alcoholic has after his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink like other men. But like him, I gathered all my forces, attempted to stop altogether, and I found that I could not you know? And then there's another story that's Fred. Here's Fred's story. Everything for him was great, right? Just like me, I was on my honeymoon. Everything for me was great. On page 41, it says, physically, I felt fine. No pressing problems or worries. It was the end of a perfect day not a cloud on the horizon. And that is the truth for me. I was in Jamaica. There wasn't a cloud on the horizon. It was a gorgeous sunny day. I was not, I did not do this to sabotage myself, trust me. I was thrilled. You could not have met a happier newlywed, thrilled. What happened for me was I looked around and I saw other newly married couples. And remember, I was in a thin body. And I looked like them and I was married with a, you know, with a husband who I loved. I thought I was like them and I had a drink and it was, you know, a beautiful frozen tropical drink. It was, I say it was ice cream in a glass, right? It was, um, it was so pretty and um, but I'm powerless. And what happened for me um, was That from that point on in my honeymoon, I could like mark it on the calendar. It was different. Everything about that trip was different. Um, The rest of the honeymoon, we didn't go on excursions. I did up until that point. But after that point, I just wanted to sit at the pool bar and eat and drink. That's what I wanted to do. And, And, you know, when you're in Jamaica at the pool bar, it seems normal everybody who's sitting at the pool bar and not getting up is drinking, right? So now I'm thinking, well, this is normal too because food dictates what I do. I wasn't hanging out with the people on the excursions anymore, right? I was, I was hanging out with the people at the pool bar. That's what I did on the rest of the honeymoon. And we, you know, we actually had fun. We had a good time together, you know, but none of my clothes fit me. By the time that honeymoon was over, all my beautiful clothes that I had bought for my honeymoon, I couldn't wear. And now I didn't know I was powerless on the honeymoon, why? Because I wasn't, I didn't try to stop. And the definition of powerlessness is when you really want to, right? You find you cannot stop. So I found out I was powerless the Monday after I came home from my honeymoon, when that God of abstinence was nowhere to be found. The food plan that I worshiped, I couldn't practice it anymore. I didn't have the ability and it was crushing. And you know, remember the same way that I said that it was humiliating and painful to gain a hundred pounds in high school well, to do the same thing in your early marriage is equally painful and humiliating. And I say it's abusive to a marriage. It it, it um, creates a level of don't come near me. It, you know, food for me was, you know, when they talk, there's a part in Bill's story where he says that there was no unfaithfulness, right? He said, because alcohol, right? He was, he, he claims that he wasn't unfaithful to his wife in his story. Um, And he says, you know, because of drinking kept him out of that. And I have to tell you, when I look at that closely, while I was not unfaithful, I was unfaithful because my fidelity was to food. Right? Food was my lover. Food's what I turned to. I would, I would want my husband to go up to go to sleep so I could be alone with the food. I would want. You know, I would want him to hang out longer watching TV so I could go away and be alone with the food. That's not having fidelity to your marriage. That's having fidelity to your your disease. And, And I knew this, right? Now, pain and humiliation isn't sufficient power. Remember, I said that the purpose of this talk is to tell you why I must have a spiritual connection. Because pain and humiliation and knowledge and a good food plan is not God. None of those things are God. You know, here I was, I had a job I loved, I had a husband I loved, I had everything I loved. And in my own hands, I destroy it. And that's what happens for a woman like me. That's what happens for me. You know, I went up and down for many, many years. You know, and what I found out is I have a very high threshold for pain and I don't surrender easily. I don't give up easily. Um, you know, I say, like, how do I know I had a high threshold for pain? Well, on a regular basis, I broke toilet seats, right? That my husband on, on some weekend mornings would quietly go to Home Depot and replace the toilet seat that I had cracked. And um, and he never, he's such a good man. He never said anything ever. You know, in fact, my husband would say, and he might even say it to this day, cause he's so sweet. He would say, you know what? They don't make things like they used to. That's what my husband would say, right? Now I have to tell you I haven't broken a toilet seat in many, many years. So maybe they do make things just fine. But he was so kind, right? Never said anything. You know, I couldn't fit in the kitchen chairs on my own house. I would walk onto an airplane and people would, now I'm a really nice person. If you know me, I'm a nice lady. I'm sweet. I'm a nice woman. People would look aside when I would walk down the, you know, the, the plane because nobody wanted me to have the seat next to them because nobody wanted me to be invading their personal space. And I felt that right here. And in my heart, I felt like, you know what? If I could have chosen a different seat, I would have to, right? If I could have chosen another seat that wasn't with me, I would have chosen that seat too. And I have to tell you If you think that God doesn't care about us, that this food problem is a small problem, I know that that's a lie. I know that's not true because I'm a child of God and there is no way that he wants a child of his to walk around experiencing life, feeling that level of pain, feeling unworthy to sit in a seat right, to feel that level of humiliation and pain. And, and I know, I know that God does not feel that way towards me, right? You know, my last binge, I just wanna tell you this, my last binge, I ate until I, my mouth bled. And it wasn't sugar. <laughs> it wasn't even anything that tasted good anymore. It was shredded wheat cereal. It didn't taste good and it didn't feel good it hurt it physically hurt to chew i was terrified i was absolutely terrified because i was like what the what in god's name is happening to me and you know what happened well and there and there's a solution on page 25 i'm going to tell you the great fact is just this and nothing less that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows and towards God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered our hearts and lives or lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us, which we could never do by ourselves. It goes on to say, you know, if you've passed into the region for which there's no return through human aid, I'm gonna drill down on that, no human aid, we have but two alternatives, right? One, go to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could and the other to accept spiritual help. So I have two choices, either I'm going to have to consume a lot of food to live with the misery of walking on airplanes and having people look away, right? I'm gonna have to eat a lot of food to live with the misery of breaking toilet seats or accept spiritual help, right? Those are my only options, that's it. Nothing else, nothing else. You know, I owe everything. I say I owe everything to Overeaters Anonymous, why? Well, it saved my life. Overeaters Anonymous saved my life. And really what Overeaters Anonymous did for me was it gave me an introduction to my creator. It forced me to have a relationship with God. And I, cause I believe, I don't know that I would have found God another way. I really don't believe I would have. Remember I said that I'm someone who has an extraordinary high threshold for pain and I'm really stubborn, I don't give up easily. I needed the bone-crushing pain of this addiction, I don't know why, to help me find God. And really what I found out is that although morbid obesity, which seemed like the biggest problem, the biggest problem, it really wasn't. It wasn't, but it allowed me to meet God it forced me to have a relationship with God, which, you know, I've had through working the 12 steps, the 12 steps gave me a spiritual experience. And it gave me a relationship with my creator, which is the topic of this, of this, of this, you know, format. So, um, and what I found out was life, <laughs> life is life, <laughs> life, is always gonna present us with challenges and storms. That's been my experience. Life has not been, you know, I used to live thinking someday when I'm thin, someday when I'm thin, someday when I'm thin, it was like this magic wand was gonna make, you know, miracles in all aspects of my life, my, my, Everything is going to be great when I'm thin. My kids are going to listen to me. My boss is going to respect me. I'm going to be super here. I'm going to be, basically, it's not true. What happened for me being thin is I no longer break toilet seats and I get to wear the same dress year after year after year. That's, that's awesome. That's great. But also the thin body is, or a normal size body is what allows me to demonstrate the miracle. It allows me to have a platform. I say, you know, years ago there was these Mary Kay ladies. I don't know if they still exist, but they got the pink Cadillac. And their pink Cadillac was like their calling card to say that they had a successful plan. They had a product that could give them some sort of success. And I like to think about, you know, what were they selling? They were selling that product. Well, what am I selling? Hopefully I'm selling God. That's what I'm here to sell, right? So if I get to wear a normal size body, I think about it like my Mary Kay pink Cadillac. It's sort of what I get to parade around in, hopefully to let people know that there's a power much greater than me, right? Much greater than all of us that can relieve us of all of our problems. And really what happened was life continue to present me problems. And now I have a relationship with God that I can turn to for every single one of those problems. And it works. That relationship with God truly works. So with that, I'm going to pass. I'm gonna end. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you, thank
4: you. Um,
0: So everybody, we're gonna take a a five minute pee break. And uh, we'll come back, and, uh, and then we will have uh, Janet is going to take over for the next hour. So uh, we'll see you back in five minutes. Hi. Hi, Janet. Hello. Thanks for coming. So glad you're here. Oh me too. Yay. me
4: too.
0: Me too. Me too. So I guess it's so it's it's well it's 155 my time. So I think it's four fifty-five your time is two o'clock. Sorry, oh. oh, it's two o'clock my time. <laughs> Everybody else is different in their time zones. Um, but we're back to the second hour, so we have just started the recording again, and this is the June 6th OA Rise meeting, and our topic is Growing My Faith and Strengthening My Spirituality. However, actually, I apologize, we need to stop for a moment to do our uh, virtual 7th uh, Tradition Break. Um, so this is where we're going to pass the virtual 7th Tradition Basket. Uh, you are welcome to... Um, send any Seventh Tradition contributions to... I'm just looking at our chat again so I can remember myself. Um, uh, Our email address is info at oarise.org. Laura?
5: Uh, Hey, uh, Sherry, this is Laura. Um, Can you explain how to find the notation on the website and where I need to go to do that?
0: You betcha. So um, let me just screen share. Thank you, Laura. So if you go to our OA RISE website, I'm sorry, the OA RISE website, I'm just a part of the committee. It's not ours. It is the OA RISE website, and sorry, let me just uh, close my here, okay, so this is what the OA RISE website looks like. If you haven't been here before, please feel free to do so. on computer. Um, and this is where you'll find uh, where the upcoming meetings are. If you'd like to volunteer with us, which we would really, really appreciate because we don't have very many committee members um, and we do really need service. Um, so if you're willing to help us with the background for Zoom, um, if you can help us find speakers, um, but really the main thing for us is to help us with the Zoom on the days, which is only twice a month and you don't have to do it both times. You could do it once a month or once every other month. If you can help us, we would really appreciate that. If you don't have Zoom experience, I am more than happy, as we all are, um, to give you a rundown and it's a good way to learn about how to operate Zoom as well. Um, So it's it's really not that challenging and I'd be very happy to train you. Uh, And here's where you would find the the recordings for any past speakers, but here is where you can see the Contribute Now button. So this is on the very first page. As soon as you go to oarise.org, on the very first page here is the contribute. So if you would like to contribute to our Seventh Tradition, we would really appreciate that. Uh, Because in the past, sometimes we aren't making our, uh, we aren't making our uh, our rent, so to speak, for uh, the website, especially which we need to operate in order to be able to upload the the, uh, speaker recordings for everybody. So if you have a dollar or two to contribute, we would really appreciate that. Um, So let's just take actually one minute so that people can do that if they are able to, and if you can't now and you could do it later, that's fine too. Uh, The last thing actually, while that's happening, I'll just mention as well that if you are someone who would like to have a copy of the flyers for the upcoming uh, speaker meetings, we do have a flyer. In fact, I will post it in the chat. Um, I can do that for you after, Um, but the um, so if you need the flyer for the current meetings, which we have going until August, I think we've got our speakers actually, we've got speakers set up right through until November, I think so we're so, so excited about that. Um, But right now we've got a flyer that goes up until August, Um, I will post that but also I can send it to you by email if you'd like that as well. And if you would like copies of the upcoming flyers when we get them, Uh, feel free to send me your email address in the chat and just say for flyer and I will put you on the list so that you will get copies of any flyers that are coming up for the future uh, meetings. Okay, and all right. I think we have given enough time for our virtual passing of the basket. So now I am going to turn the meeting back over to our wonderful speakers. Um, Oh, thank you, Sierra. Sarah just said, It's so easy to donate. I just did it in a few minutes. Yay, thank you, Sarah. And, okay, Janet, we're gonna hand it over to you. Um, And we do have the recording already going, Laura. Terrific. Okay. Okay, Janet, all yours.
6: Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Janet B. from New Jersey. I'm recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And, the topic that Melissa told me was strengthening faith and growing in faith. So I figured what better chapter in the big book to do than we agnostics. So I just want to just run through what I think are kind of the highlights in that chapter. So um, first, a few words about me, very few, because I'd rather talk about what the book says. So a um, couple things about me um i'm janet i've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia um, i first came into oa when i was in high school
0: oh janet i'm so sorry janet, you're muted somehow you got muted apologies if you could unmute and try again sorry we just okay. lost you after like the last couple of words. Okay, Um, so I went into OA
6: when I was in high school. I was already a full-fledged compulsive eater. I stole food, I stole money for food. And my first seven years in OA, I never got more than two weeks of abstinence. A lot of times I couldn't even get two days and sometimes I couldn't make it to lunch. Um, And I did what I was told. I had about 50 different sponsors. I followed directions. The problem was um, I wasn't getting quite the right directions, um, so there I was, and I started binging and throwing up. At my worst, I was binging and purging six times a day, and after that, I had to go into, I had to go to the hospital to get surgery on my esophagus because my esophagus had become so loose from all the from all the throwing up. And so there I was in OA, not getting better, until about seven years in, I was at an OA convention and a woman held up a big book and said she hadn't binged in a year. I couldn't fathom it. I was binging at the convention. And I went up to her and I said, what did you do to recover? And that is when I believe God started his search and rescue mission for me. And thus began um, a great journey of recovery and abstinence and I've been in recovery over 30 years now and I'm really excited to talk about this chapter because it's really a chapter on how to find God. Um, So I don't know if you all have your books but I'll just say what page I'm on in case you want to follow along but we'll start at the beginning on page 44 the first paragraph it says if when you honestly want to you find you cannot quit entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably alcoholic. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness, which only a spiritual experience will conquer." Well, my first seven years in OA, I honestly wanted to stop and I couldn't. So you know what people said to me? They said, you don't really wanna stop. If you wanted to stop, you could. But the book is telling me something different. The book is telling me that the definition of an addict is wanting to stop, but being unable to. And imagine this like in a a medical setting, right? What if someone goes to the doctor and the doctor says, here, here's the CAT scan. This proves that you have cancer. And the person says, now I know I am powerless over my cancer and my life is unmanageable. Would the doctor then say, great. Now that you know you're powerless over cancer, now go home and make your cancer cells stop multiplying. No, but so often we confuse lack of desire with lack of power. But the next line was, if that be the case, if you're really an addict, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. How come? Why do I need a spiritual experience? Well. Um, It's in chapter five, it says that this is a spiritual malady. Once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So if I have pneumonia, my solution is penicillin. If I have a broken leg, my solution is a cast. If I have a spiritual malady, then I need a spiritual solution. And Melissa talked about that in the previous talk, that it's a spiritual experience, that everything becomes different. It's basically like God rewires my heart so that my priorities become more like his priorities. So that's what I need. And then they say to one who feels he's an atheist or agnostic, this seems impossible, but to continue as we are is disaster. So whether we believe in God, and now I was, I believed in God, I guess I was like a a practical agnostic. Um, I just, you know, I believed in God, but he was there for war and poverty and children starving in Ethiopia. And what did he care about? Me losing weight and not throwing up anymore. Um, But so what does the book tell me I need to do? Well, first it defines a problem, right? If I want to find a solution, I need to know what the problem is. So on page 45, it doesn't say that lack of desire is a problem or lack of knowledge or lack of a good moral code. It says lack of power. That was our dilemma. And Then it tells me the solution. We had to find a power by which we could live and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. Well, yeah, because this illness was stronger than me. It kicked my butt. I was like an army of one fighting an army of a hundred. So this power, this God had to have at least 101 units of power. And then it tells me, says, where and how are we to find this power? Then the comforting line. Well, that's exactly what this book is about. And now the mission statement of the big book. It's main object, it's numero uno purpose is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Okay, so if I'm on a, I'm like a spiritual detective looking for clues about this power greater than myself, here's my first clues. A power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. So that gives me three clues. If this power can figure out how to solve my problem, this power must be pretty smart because I certainly couldn't solve my problems. If this power is going to solve my problems, it must be strong because as I said, this illness was stronger than I am. So this power had to be stronger than this illness. And most important to me, if this power is going to solve my problem, then this power must care about me. Otherwise, why would it bother solving my problems? So this power is smart, strong, and cares about me. Okay, now you have my attention. I'm interested. What do I do next? And the book tells me what I do next. And it spends a lot of time talking about laying aside prejudice. Now, we generally think of prejudice as something like um, feeling superior to people of different races, religions, nationalities, but that's not how the book talks about prejudice. They talk about preconceived notions that get in the way of our idea about God. So on the bottom of page 45 and the top of page 46, they go through what some of them are. They say, okay, Um, the word God brought up a particular idea of him with which someone had tried to impress them during childhood. What if we were raised with the concept of a God who basically had this book and on the left side, he wrote down all our good deeds and on the right side, he wrote down all our bad deeds. And if the bad deeds were more than the good deeds, then five seconds after I'm dead, he's gonna meet me with a baseball bat to lump me up. Okay, that would be a problem. That would be a prejudice, a preconceived notion I'd have to deal with. Um, And by the way, if anyone has that prejudice, here's a way to deal with it. You picture that God with a baseball bat in the ledger. Then you picture a real God. You picture however you would conceive of a loving God. And that loving God coming in and taking the mask off of that false God and exposing him for what he really is, nothing like the man behind the curtain in the Wizard of Oz, nothing, no power. And we visualize that until we all, all we have left is the real God. Okay, um, another one they say is, we were bothered with the thought that faith and dependence upon a power beyond ourselves was weak or cowardly. So that prejudice may be people who believe in God are weak and I can't see myself as weak. That's a prejudice because actually some of the strongest people who accomplish the most um, believe in God. Then a very valid one that a lot of us have, looked upon this world of warring individuals, warring theological systems and inexplicable calamity with deep skepticism. Well, that's a prejudice that Bill Wilson had, right? Back on page 11, when Ebby was telling him about God, Bill's like, yeah, I can understand like an impersonal force that sets things in motion. Like someone had to set, you know, the law of gravity into effect. So yeah, there's some kind of force, but he said, "Uh uh-uh, if there's a God, what about all the wars, the chicanery, all this stuff going on? Um, If there is a devil, he seems the boss. Bill actually said that. So I think a lot of times we have prejudices like that. Like if there is a God, how could he allow human trafficking? Or if there is a God, how could he allow my relative to die of cancer? And a way we deal with that is just what Ebby said to Bill. He basically said, Bill, I don't have the answer to those questions. All I know is that when I gave my life to God, God took away the obsession to drink. And Bill looked at him and he said something was different about him. Ebby was a caterpillar who was now a butterfly. His roots grasped a new soil. Um, another prejudice someone could have is, well, all these people who claim to be godly aren't very nice. I say, yeah, that may be true. But all that says anything about is those people who claim to be godly. It doesn't say anything about God himself. So we need to lay aside prejudices and we'll come back to it. The book talks more about it in a few pages, but then it tells us, um, remember lack of power is our problem. So it says as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice, So that's our job to look at all our prejudices and lay them aside. So we have to do that and express a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves. Why might someone not be willing? Well, if I believe in a power greater than myself, if I believe not in just an impersonal force, but a God who probably has a will for my life, I might might not be able to do everything I want, you know, can't keep. Stealing, if I was stealing, can't keep cheating on my husband or cheating on my taxes. Um, I never did cheat on my husband. I can't remember if I ever cheated on my taxes. I want to. I don't think so. But anyway, we have to. Um, we may not be willing to believe in God because we know that God might have certain standards for us. But as soon as we're able to lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves we commence to get results. And what are the results? Well, the next paragraph it tells us, again, as soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power, right? That's what I needed, power and direction, provided we took other simple steps. I get just enough power to get me to step three. And at step three, I get enough power to get me to step four. So it says, lay aside prejudice. We talked about how to do that and express even a willingness. Well, how do we do that? How do we get willing to believe in something we don't believe in? So I'll talk about how it was for me. I believed in God, but didn't really understand the way it worked. And the way it worked for me, after my last binge, I went to a meeting, I took a sponsor who I knew would let me get away with nothing, nothing. And who I knew knew this book. And I just told the sponsor, I'll do anything you say. And I meant it. And then I said my willingness prayer. I went outside and I said, God, I've always had fixed ideas of what you were like and how to worship you. I'm willing to admit it's all wrong and to start over and let you show me what you're like and how to worship you. And that was it. that was like a hand reached in and just yanked out my obsession. Now, there may be someone here who says, well, I don't even believe that there's a God at all. There's a way, There's a way to pray then too. And the prayer can go like this. God, I don't know if you even exist. And if you exist, I don't know if you care about me. But if you do exist and you do care, I need some help. And the worst thing that could happen is that you're talking to dead air and there's nothing there. But what if there really is a God? What if there is? And what if that prayer is the catalyst that sets him in motion to send down his little team of miniature angels with their hard hats and little tool belts to start the renovation job on our heart? Isn't it worth taking a chance that maybe it's just dead air? So we do that, and then we have to do a little more. It says, "Okay, you know, what if I'm not sure? Um, what do I do?" And it says, "Okay, we assumed we could not make use of spiritual principles unless we accepted many things on faith, faith, which seemed difficult, but we can commence on a simpler level." those maybe prayers or a simpler level, but coupled with it, we have to start making use of spiritual principles. We have to do what we know. Um, I had a friend who was a recovered alcoholic and he said, every alcoholic who comes around can stop lying and stop stealing. From day one, we can stop lying and stop stealing. We can start doing self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice means there's something I want to do and I put it aside in order to help somebody else. We can start doing that right away. So we've got our willingness and we've got our beginning to practice spiritual principles. And if we're doing that, we should at this point have enough power to um, to keep going. So on page 48, it talks about, Electricity and the prosaic steel girder, and all this stuff that I have no clue what it's talking about. But basically, what they're saying is we use electricity without understanding it, right? We turn switches on and off. We have no idea how that power gets from the sun or wherever it comes from and into our house and into our light switch, but we use it. We don't need to understand it. We just say it works. But when it comes to God, boy, we need to know every single thing, why he allowed this thing to happen in that foreign country before we give him a fair chance. We don't even give God the same respect we give electricity. And so they're telling us, we don't need to understand. We need to just start out with baby steps of faith. And it tells us why it's so worth it. On page 49, it says, what we should be looking at ourselves as. Intelligent agents, spearheads of God's ever advancing creation. What were we doing instead? We agnostics and atheists chose to believe our human intelligence was the last word, the alpha and omega, the beginning and end, rather vain. So here I was just living my life. But then working these steps, realizing that God wants me as his agent. That's really cool. Like he is the principal, we are the agents. And what's the principal doing? Well, my personal belief, and now I'm just veering into the realm of opinion, is he took six days to create the world. He took a day off to rest. And then instead of spending the rest of eternity watching Netflix, he is launching search and rescue programs for us addicts, launching search and rescue missions. He wants to bring us all to him. He loves us that much. And he wants me, he wants us to be agents in his search and rescue missions. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I used to sit around and say, oh, why was I created? Why am I here? I had no sense of purpose. This program gives me a great sense of purpose. And God has a purpose. He wants us to be his agents, spearheads of his ever advancing creation. That's so awesome. Um, And then as a result of doing this, I start getting power, but I start getting a little bit more. It says, okay, I stop amusing myself by cynically dissecting other people's beliefs and practices so we can't be cynical anymore. And then what do we get when we're spiritually minded? A degree of stability, happiness, and usefulness. So God could have stopped with just removing my food obsession, but he loves us too much to just end there. He gives us happiness, stability, and usefulness. Isn't that awesome? So we turn the page and we see, um. Now it goes and talks about the stories and it says, okay, we're going to tell you about this book. We're going to give you directions, but there's also stories. And it says why we tell our stories. It says in our personal stories, you will find a wide variation in the way each teller approaches and conceives of the power, which is greater than himself. So wide variation on how we found God, right? I found God, in a meeting where I made a decision to do it, go to any lengths and then in the parking lot afterwards when I said that prayer to God. Other people, I'm sure, have different ways. But they say, on one proposition, these men and women are strikingly agreed. You think you can get two alcoholics to agree on anything. Now they had at least the first hundred who wrote this book to agree. Every one of them, so 100% has done two things gained access to, and believes in a power greater than himself. Believes in, okay, you know, that's, that's fine. That's one thing. Again, I believed in God even when I was binging, but gained access to, gained access to the power of God. And it says this power has in each case, 100% of the time, accomplished the miraculous, the humanly, impossible and it says what happened to all these people there's been a revolutionary change in their way of living and thinking right a spiritual experience and look at that word revolution you know it makes me think of les Mise, right like a revolution a war but in this case the good guys win right away god wins and changes in the way we live the way we treat others and the way we think There's a shift in our values, in our priorities. In the face of collapse and despair. So this is who this program is for. Not for people who just want to diet, but for people whose lives are just collapsing and they're despairing. In the face of the total failure of their human resources, what do we get? A new power, peace, happiness, and sense of direction flowed into them. It comes into me like a pick line into my heart. This happened soon after they wholeheartedly met a few simple requirements. Trust and rely on God. And then as we see later in the steps, clean house and help others. So we're going to flip down to the bottom of page 51, 52, where it starts talking about the Wright brothers. And it's like, Come on guys, first you're talking about electricity and the prosaic steel girder. And now you're talking about Professor Langley. I don't even know who he is, but it looks like he's a guy who tried to build an airplane and it didn't work. Okay, um, then we get to the Wright brothers and it says why they succeeded. And at first glance, this makes no sense. So I'm on the bottom of page 52. The Wright brothers' almost childish faith that they could build a machine which would fly was the mainspring of their accomplishment. Without that, nothing could have happened. Well, that's kind of interesting, right? I would think that you would say the Wright brothers' aerodynamic knowledge, their astute mathematical ability, was the mainspring of their accomplishment. But it says, no their faith that they could do it. And without that, nothing could have happened. What? Like, you're telling me they couldn't have built an airplane without that? And yeah, that's what they're saying. Well, how come, right? How come? Well, faith clearly did something, right? So the way I like, and it's hard to understand, but look at it like this. Here on planet earth, if we want to get something, we will hand the clerk a $20 bill or a credit card and we'll get a bag of groceries or or a tank full of gas. Actually now $20 you get half a tank full, but anyway. um, So imagine someone from planet Mars looking down and they see me going to the grocery or the gas station and handing the clerk this green and white piece of paper or this plastic card that the clerk sticks in a little machine and I get groceries or gas in my car. He would say that makes no sense. But that's how things are done in the physical world. That's how things are transacted. Can't work that way in the spiritual world. I can't say, um, God, here's a 20. Now remove my obsession. Or, you know, here's my Amex. Take away my compulsion to eat. It doesn't work that way. Faith is a catalyst in the spiritual world. And if you think about it, It makes sense. Otherwise, why would we have step two? Step two says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We don't have that in the physical world, right? Um, If my, when my son was two, he had a very severe respiratory illness and he had to get a shot, very painful shot in his leg. He did not want the shot, but one thing that is definitely true. He did not need to believe that that shot could restore him to physical health. He didn't need to believe it. He just had to take the shot. Um, because on the physical plane, faith doesn't matter, right? If if I do um, if I have pneumonia, and they give me penicillin, it doesn't matter whether or not I believe penicillin is going to help me. It's it's going to help me. But in the spiritual world faith is required because faith is actually a catalyst that allows god to act without faith it can't be accomplished and that's why they tell us we can start with maybe we can start with a maybe prayer with willingness but we have to get to faith and so we again keep clearing away our prejudices and they talk more about that. Um, I'm going to flip all the way to page 55, where it's one of my favorite um, couple lines in this, in this um, chapter, and in the book. The second full paragraph on page 55 says, well, first it says, yeah, we'd seen spiritual release, but we like to tell ourselves it wasn't true. Then it says, Actually, we were fooling ourselves, for deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or other, it is there. Okay, that's kind of mind-boggling. Deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. So that means when God created me, he gave me two eyes, two ears, a nose, a mouth, and the fundamental idea of himself. He loves me so much, he loves us so much, that he plants the fundamental idea of himself in us. But here's the problem, it may be obscured. So just like um, if I had cataracts, I wouldn't be able to see until the cataracts were removed. Where people have spiritual cataracts. And what are they? What obscures our view of God? Calamity, pomp, and worship of other things. Calamity, that's saying like all those bad things that have happened. But again, Ebby gives us the solution in Bill's story. He says, Bill, I don't know why. Yeah, there is calamity. All I know is that God is good. When I gave my life to him, I stopped drinking and my life worked. By pomp. Well, all that is is worship of myself and putting myself on the throne, thinking that, you know, all the people in my life and the people not even in my life need to orbit around me. Everyone's got to get my will done, pomp, and worship of other things. And page 54 tells us what those other things are people, sentiment, things, money, and ourselves, right? Worship a husband worship a boyfriend, worship the desire for a husband or a boyfriend, worship the desire to have children, worship the success of my children, worship how my children are treating me, sentiment, things, money, how much money do I have? How's my career going? And again, ourselves. So again, these are prejudices we need to get rid of. And then um, it says, We can, I'm back on bottom of 55, we can only clear the ground a bit if our testimony helps sweep away prejudice. Again, over and over in this chapter, they talk about getting rid of prejudice because that is our spiritual cataracts. Enable you to think honestly. So if we say, well, you know, God's up there waiting with a baseball bat to get me after I'm dead. We have to think, really? Like, do we really believe that? Or when people say... um, God can restore everyone else to sanity, but not me. We have to think honestly, like, okay, does that make sense? And I'll cover that more in detail in, in a few minutes. And encourages us to search diligently. We have to seek. We can't be happy, content to just be where we are. We keep seeking. And then they say the best way to end this chapter is to give an example. And they talk about the minister's son. I love this story for about 10 different reasons. Um, And just his full story is called Our Southern Friend. And it starts on page 208. And I'll be reading a little bit from there. So here's the minister's son. And we can kind of see why he became an alcoholic. Top of page 56. Um, He became rebellious at what he thought an overdose of religious education. Pride, turning his back on God. Then in his life, there was business failure, insanity, fatal illness, suicide, calamity. These things embittered and depressed him, embittered him. That's another word for resentment. So we've got pride, turning his back on God, calamity, resentment. Where does it Lands him, it lands him in the insane asylum. So there he is in the ins- insane asylum, and you know, saying, Well, if there is a God, he hasn't done anything for me, but God gives him a gift. Remember, God's search and rescue program, and God was searching for him right in the asylum, and he had an agent there, he had a fellow inmate there. And so, our friend, the minister's son goes and talks to the inmate and you know says if there is a god he hasn't done anything for me but then he goes back to him and he asks him you know okay what do i do so first the, the fellow inmate says what are you willing to do are you willing to be honest are you willing to think about other people and their needs instead of your own in order to get rid of the drink problem and he says I'll do anything. So he had step one, or he had willingness, but no step two yet, so he doesn't have any power. The man says, all your troubles are over. And he goes back, and he has a little bit of humility and that willingness to believe in God. And he says, is it possible that all the religious people I have known are wrong? So, okay, He's willing to believe in God, so what does he do? He goes back to the inmate, the agent in God's search and rescue program for him, and he says "I'm on page 215, I must ask you a question. How does prayer fit into this thing? Well, says the inmate slash God's agent, you've probably tried praying like I have. When you've been in a jam, you said God, please do this or that. And if it turned out your way, that was the last of it. And if it didn't, you said there isn't any God or he doesn't do anything for me. Is that right? Yes, said the minister's son. That's not the way, said the inmate slash God's agent. "Um, The thing I do is to say, God, here I am and here are all my troubles. I've made a mess of things and can't do anything about it. You take me and all my troubles and do anything you want with me. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does, says the minister's son. And this is what he says. I return to bed. It doesn't make sense. Suddenly I feel a wave of utter hopelessness sweep over me. I am in the bottom of hell and there a tremendous hope is born. It might be true. I tumble out of bed onto my knees. I know not what I say, but slowly a great peace comes to me. I feel lifted up. I believe in God. I crawl back into bed and sleep like a child. If we go back to historian We Agnostics, it says even more than that. He was overwhelmed by a conviction of the presence of God. It poured over and through him with the certainty and majesty of a great tide at flood. He stood in the presence of infinite power and love. He lived in conscious companionship with his creator. Isn't that beautiful? Then it tells us um, on page 57, say for a few brief moments of temptation, the thought of drink has never returned. And at such times, a great revulsion has risen up in him. And in the story, it actually told about when he was tempted, th- those few brief moments of temptation. And what did he do? He went to his wife and said, honey, I'm about to go drink. Obviously, what he really was saying was, honey, I'm about to go drink, please stop me. And she did. He told on himself. He got those boogeymen out of the closet in his mind. And it says, seemingly he could not drink even if he would. God had restored his sanity. That's what this is about, being restored to sanity. And then, okay, listen to this. What is this but a miracle of healing, yet its elements are simple? Okay, yes, I can agree it's a miracle of healing, but its elements are simple. So they are telling me that the elements of a miracle are simple, like a recipe, right? It's like a recipe for cooking oatmeal. You take a third cup of oats, you take, you know, half a teaspoon of salt, and you take a cup of water, you put it on the stove, and you light a flame, and you cook it for three three to five minutes. They are simple. They're saying, okay, here, here's how to make a miracle. But then they tell us the elements, the recipe for a miracle. Circumstances made him willing to believe. Step one, willingness to go to any length. He humbly offered himself to his maker, his step three, then he knew. Circumstances made him willing to believe. That's really steps one and two in there. And he humbly offered himself to his maker, step three, then he knew. Even so has God restored us all to our right minds. So not just remove the drink or the food problem, our right minds. On page 57, it says, once a spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. It says, he has come to all who have sought him. When we drew near to him, he disclosed himself to us. So I just wanna say a few more things. that's the final ABCs that I think are really helpful if we're having trouble getting to believe that God can restore us personally to sanity. And it's really helpful in working with the sponsee because by doing this, we can pinpoint exactly what the problem is. Um, So on page 60, we see the ABCs, right? Our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. And it says, A, that we were alcoholics or compulsive eaters and could not manage our own lives. So we ask ourselves, okay, do I believe I'm a compulsive eater? Yes, or we wouldn't be here on a gorgeous Sunday afternoon and can't manage my own life. Probably the same answer. If not, the person has to go back and work on step one. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism, could have removed our compulsive eating. Um, yeah, by this time we've, we've probably tried the route of, um, what's it called, pay and weigh or weigh and pay. Um, To, you know, over um, weight watchers or diets or, you know, all this other stuff, and it doesn't work. We know that doesn't work. See, now here's the part where we can really work on that God could and would if He were sought. So here's what I would say to someone who says they're not sure God could restore them to sanity. Do you believe that God could restore people in general to sanity, not you? but other people, could God restore them to sanity? And people generally say, yes, because they've seen it. Okay, do you think God could restore you personally to sanity if he wanted to? He may not want to, but could he if he wanted to? Well, if someone says no, he couldn't even if he wanted to, well, that's a time to really encourage someone to think honestly. Because if he could for 9,000 other people, then he could for you if he wanted to. And generally a person will concede, well, yeah, he could if he wanted to, but he doesn't want, he, I don't think he wants to. And we say, okay, okay. And then the next part is that God would if he were sought. So then we could say, What do you think it means to seek God? And a person can really make a list of what it means to seek God. Um, Basically, work these 12 steps. And then, okay, are you willing to do that? Yes. Okay, so do you believe God will? If you seek him, you've said you're going to seek him. Do you believe he will? And often people say, no, he could if he want to but he doesn't want to and he won't for me. And then we need to figure out why. And it's generally one of three reasons. The first is I've tried it so many times before and it hasn't worked. And what I would do then is I would hold up a phone and I would say for years, I might be trying to take a picture with my cell phone by pushing the on button maybe for seven years, and it doesn't take a picture. And then after seven years, I meet someone who has the manual and they say, Janet, you've been doing it wrong. It's not this button, it's this button. And immediately I can take a picture. Now, someone might be lucky and someone with the manual will show them how to take a picture the first time they go to, I can't take pictures with my cell phone anonymous, but they may have to wait seven years like I did. It doesn't matter. Once we have the manual and the directions, it doesn't matter if you've tried 100 times before. If you're seeking and you're seeking with the right manual, God can restore you to sanity. Then sometimes people say, well, I've done this really bad thing in the past. And then we point out, well, so did all the founders of AA. That's why there's a ninth step right, and you'll get a chance to make an amend in step nine, then sometimes someone will say, I'm just not worthy. And unlike a lot of um, therapists, what I would say to that person is, you're right, you're not worthy. But neither was I, and neither was anyone who was restored to sanity. Because being worthy isn't a requirement, or none of us would be okay. Willingness is a requirement, not being worthy. So of course you're not worthy, but that's fine. That's not a requirement. So I think those are the only three um, objections that someone would have, the only three kind of plausible objections. They'd all be some variation of that. I've tried this before, it hasn't worked. Um, I've done something bad or I am bad but none of that gets in the way. If we're willing to seek, God is willing to be found. I'll just close with this, at the end of um, The Doctor's Opinion, and The Doctor's Opinion is really a book review on this book. It was written after this book was, and it's, you know, he, he goes through the scientific part and how he realizes that God is the answer. And he just says, I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through, and though perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. If we pray, there really and truly is a God who is up there or down here or everywhere listening and willing to help us, and then we can get helped, and then we can be his agents and help him on his search and rescue missions
0: for our fellows.
6: And with that, I pass.
0: Thank you so much, Janet. Um. So it's to, uh, <laughs> in Pacific time. It's two forty-eight. Did we want to take a, a break now, or it's totally up to you? It, did you want to take a couple questions and answers, um, Janet? We can take a couple questions because
6: I'm not going to be able to come back after the break. I have a family thing. Okay. So. I'm I'm fine for questions now.
0: Okay, if anybody has any questions, you can raise your hand. Uh, you can do so by going down to the bottom of your screen. There is a reactions button, and uh, there's the raise hand there. Uh, Michael S. Hang on two seconds, Michael.
4: Thank you so much, Janet. Thank you. I really appreciate your share. Um, can you talk about moments where you might have felt, you know, less connected to your higher power, or you know, you still go through the motions or are praying, but are not feeling as grounded in your spiritual life or connection?
6: Yeah, of course that happens. I think that happens to everyone, but I think what I do is then um, I rely on my disciplines because. When I first started in recovery, I just made a decision that I was going to spend 45 minutes every morning with God. You're 15 minutes in spiritual reading, 15 minutes in prayer, and 15 minutes in meditation. And that is a practice that I've kept up most days. I mean, there are exceptions, but that's, so whether I feel connected or not, I mean, I'm spending close to an hour, and sometimes it and it's more than an hour, with God in the morning. And that's how I deal with, with dry spells. Thanks.
0: Uh, forgive me if I'm going to pronounce your name wrong,
4: but is it Dijon? Uh, yes. Um. I, uh, my question is um, on the the amends. Um, Has there ever been an amends that you were unable to physically do Um, or have you, was there ever, um, I'm trying to understand amends as far as um, when you pray for the two weeks, I think it's in I forgot what page it's on, but you pray for the person um, for the two weeks and God will restore you. I'm not sure if that's what it says exactly. Um, I'm finding it hard to go physically to people that I've harmed them. They've harmed me, but I'm physically I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm praying that God will give me the strength to address. The, the people or not address them, but just to uh, make the amends without it being with strife or with, um, expect, you know, oh, so that's where I'm at right now. Okay. So
6: if I'm understanding you correctly, you're asking about how to make an amend. If you still hold resentment for the, toward the person. Yes. Okay. So I think, yes, doing those prayers are good. And If it doesn't go away in two weeks, then pray for three weeks. I mean, I don't think two weeks is a magic number. Um, And I would say to talk with your sponsor and make sure you've really seen your part because I know for most of my resentments, not all, but most of them, when I really see my part, it's like putting a pin in a balloon. It's just all the air, all the energy goes out of it. And All I need to do when I make my amend is confess my part. If the other person has, I I can't go in there with an agenda thinking I'm going to say what I did wrong. And then they need to say what they did wrong. I'm just doing this so that I don't go back into binging. So I hope that helps.
0: Thank you. How about uh, Laura, please?
7: Laura, thank you. Sorry. I was unmuting. Um, Janet, have you, ex- uh, you may or may not experienced, I find, I know that my higher power, um, helps I've been in program for 25 years. Um, life has marched on. I've had, um, trauma in that time. And, um, Uh, I've, you know, I've had times of being super tight with my higher power, but I find that now, um, I'm avoidant, you know, I'm just avoidant of my higher power. I I know that I should meditate and, and I, I, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I just, um, yeah, have you ever had problems or can you speak to just being avoidant of your higher power? So I'm, I'm going to just say what
6: the big book says. So I guess I'd say maybe, I don't know that I had. I mean, if I did, it would have been for a very short period of time because I'm very aware of the, line in the book that says, it is easy to let up on our spiritual program and rest on our laurels. And we are headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a subtle foe. So there may be times I don't want to do certain things, but I best not stay that way for long. And I would also say that if someone wants to avoid their higher power for a long time, I would question is there something they feel they're doing that they don't think God would approve of? And so that's why they're avoiding God. Um, or do they think that maybe they have it all be and don't need God anymore? So those are some questions that I think are probably worth asking yourself to find out why you feel you don't need God anymore. I hope that helps.
1: Thank you, Janet. Okay, uh, Eileen in Idaho. Hi, Janet. Thank you so much. Hi, Eileen. Um, just a quick question. You Hi. You mentioned uh, 15 minutes of spiritual reading. Can you give an example of what those might be? I don't know if they're my internet's wonky, so I've turned my video yeah, off. Sorry. Um, um, I don't know if those are all, you know, OA or some suggestions for some spiritual readings. Or...
6: Yeah. So I do different things. Um, I've, in the course of my life, sometimes I'll read the Bible. Sometimes I'll, um, read devotionals. I actually I looked up and I looked up to see what kind of devotionals the founders of AA used, and I use a lot of those. I just, I said, if that's what these guys use, that's what I wanna use. So I'll do that.
0: Okay, Uh, anybody? Oh, uh, Michael F.
4: Janet, how do you work the big book with your sponsees? How do you take people through it? And what's your practice for studying the big book?
6: Okay, so I only have like a minute or two. So I'll talk, I'll talk Jersey. I'll talk really fast. Um, I don't read page by page line by line with them. So I actually have recordings of myself doing pretty much every chapter every step. Um, but I will give them an assignment to read something and then we'll come back and let's say we'll work on step one together. And then I'll give them a step one assignment podcast to listen to of me or some of Melissa's or there's another woman who did a great podcast on sex ideals I always um, ask people to listen to. So I'll read and go through what I think are like the meatiest part of the step give them work till I'm, till I'm sure they've taken a first step, then meet back again for the second step, then the third. Um, but for everyone, um, I have requirements. They all have to spend at least 30 minutes in the morning with God. If I can do 45, they can do 30. Um, they need to make three calls a day, be on a weight and measured food plan, go to a meeting a day and, you know, send me a text of what they learned in the meeting and any questions. And then I give them, give them assignments. They build a fellowship with other like-minded compulsive eaters because I give them numbers of people I know in recovery. So they get involved in a good fellowship. And then we just dive in the big book. I think it's more important to get through the steps quickly than to get a PhD in big book. So I'm more interested in getting them through quickly. that was two minutes but
0: (laughs) no that's perfect thank you uh, Janet so much for coming I know you took time out of your day to come and join us and actually Janet's going to come again and um, be our speaker in October I think so we'll see her again thank you so much Janet really appreciate your time and your service and sharing your recovery with us And uh, it's now time for a five minute break. So we will come back in five minutes after the hour we'll shut everything uh, down right now. So everybody can have a little break and we'll see you again in five minutes. Our seventh tradition, tradition, we're self-supporting through our own contributions and that OA Rise meeting expenses are a large Zoom meeting subscription and the cost of the OA Rise website. includes the cost of extra storage so that we can upload our speaker recordings for you okay um just checking my script i think we're good so we are the recording started again we are and this is the june 6th oa rise meeting our topic is growing my faith and strengthening my spirituality and that is actually going to be the focus of the next hour with melissa so on to you melissa
3: excellent thank you so much thanks so much okay so i'm going to jump right in there's a lot to say about growing our faith and strengthening our spirituality first i'm going to start off with what what is faith anyway right what what is this thing that we're trying to grow and faith is a complete trust or confidence in something or someone right and you know some some synonyms for faith is trust belief Confidence, conviction, reliance, dependence, optimism, hopefulness, hope, and expectation. Those are some words that, 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 you know, that faith is related to. And then the opposite is real simple, mistrust, right? Mistrust, no trust. So faith, I would say, is this internal belief. And it's actually more than a belief. It's the knowledge that our needs will be met. And that even if these needs are not met, I'm ultimately going to be taken care of. That's really what it means to have faith. And faith can be described as this certainty, right? It's a certainty we're not alone. And in order to recover, first we have to lose faith in ourselves because that's the false, right? That's the false God, right? The God of ourselves, the God of our ego. We have to lose faith in the food, right? Because that's the false God. And that's step one. That's really what comes in at step one. It's the, it's the true losing of all faith in ourselves. And then we begin to have faith in the only thing that can relieve us. Right? So in more about alcoholism on page 30, it says, we learned, we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that like where other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. And I I say this smashing is the destruction of faith in ourselves. It's when we realize we can no longer Um, place any faith in ourselves. We cannot manage and control our eating and our weight. And we cannot manage to apply our knowledge and our desire. The loss of faith, that kind of faith is a good thing, right? You want to have loss of that faith. And it needs to be done 100% smashed and eradicated, right? That's really it. Um, you know, so let's focus then if that's the, if that's what it has to take, then let's focus on this necessity for strengthening our faith, not in ourselves, right. But in our higher power and in the AA 12 and 12, which I I love the AA 12 and 12, um, it, it tells us in step 12 on page 109. From great numbers of such experiences, we could predict that the doubter, who still claimed that he hadn't got the spiritual angle, and who still considered his beloved AA group the higher power, would presently love God and call him by name. So that's like what happens really by the time you get to step 12. And I heard this wonderful podcast uh, at one point and the speaker said something about the word God that made me stop and take note. And, and, And so what he said was like, in the beginning, many newcomers struggle with the word. And that was my experience. I was like, I don't wanna say that word. I don't like that word. They don't like it. They won't say it. They won't use it. And he mentions how people will say the doorknob is a higher power. Like I've heard some crazy things, right? The doorknob is the higher power. Um, But at some point, the word comes to encompass whatever your own internal conception of God is. That's really it. So if, you know, so at some point we all just decide, I'm just gonna use the word God, right? And so if I use the word God, It's not to discredit your own personal conception, not at all. Um, I'll try, you know, as much as possible, I try to speak in a way that's as inclusive as possible. Well, first of all, because that's aligned with my set of ideals, but also because it is the direction in the text. We are told in the text, you know, um, that we're supposed to be broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive. So I'm gonna to hope to be broad roomy, all inclusive, never exclusive, you know, um, but I think it's pretty funny that you know, anybody in the beginning who won't use the word at some point just, just starts picking it up and using it because it's just easy rather than to over explain what my conception is. Because what my specific conception is, is irrelevant. That's, that's my own personal information um, and that's not required. You do not have to swallow and accept my own conception in order to have a spiritual experience, not at all. So, okay, so this brings us then to step two. And we find that in order for one to recover, it's gonna be necessary that we come to a place where we have faith that some kind of power exists that can restore us to sanity. And so then how do we increase this faith? Well, in the appendix, in the spiritual appendix, Experience in the back of the of the of the big book, on page five to sixty-eight, it says, most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There's a principle, it goes on to say that there's a principle which is a bar, a block right? Against all information, which is proof against all arguments and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. And that principle is contempt prior to investigation. So, okay. So then if I want to increase faith, here's what I'm going to need. I'm going to need willingness, honesty, three, open-mindedness, Four, I'm gonna have to start investigating without contempt. So, okay, so if you're investigating without contempt, then you're checking things out with admiration and awe, right, that's really the opposite. And to me, this means that I am seeking with delight and with the intention of finding. I'm expecting to not only find but to like the act of seeking and to delight in whatever I find. That's the attitude that I have to take, right? In the paragraph, it says defeat happens when we have an attitude of intolerance and belligerent denial. So if we want victory over food, right? If I want this spiritual experience, then what I need is the opposite of that. I need tolerance, right? I'm gonna have to have tolerance and I'm gonna have to have easygoing acceptance and agreement. So if I can spend some time really delving into these six ideas, I just gave you six ideas for increasing my faith. Willingness, right? What does that mean? It's doing things that are suggested even if you don't want to, right? Willingness is essential. How do we cultivate willingness then? How do you get willing when you're not willing? Well, I say it's like 10 parts desperation. Some of us it's like a hundred parts desperation and that's the disease's job, right? The disease makes me desperate. What made me desperate? Drive-throughs, fast food drive-throughs made me desperate. Cabbage soup diets made me desperate, Made you know, fen-fen. I took fenfen, didn't work. Um, sitting in meetings, by the way, with an attitude of smug superiority, because that's that was me at one point, to all these religious God-talking fellows, taking zero action, but hoping I just keep coming and improve, that made me desperate, right? Um, but the other important component of willingness, it's not just desperation, because it's only desperation then there, then, then what? Right? Then I would just like, I'd have no reason to get up in the morning. No, I need something else. The other important component of willingness is hope, right? Desperation combined with hope. And, you know, and the great thing is, we don't need a lot of hope. We need like this much, just enough, right? You need a lot of desperation just like a sprinkling of hope. And where do I find hope, right? If I wanna cultivate and grow my faith, well, then how do I get hopeful? And early on, I got hope from seeing others and hearing their stories. You know, I would have come and watched somebody and listened to somebody. Um, You know, today, what gives me hope, because I have to keep increasing my faith, I get to see others recover. I get to hear other people's stories you know, my own recovery today, I have to tell you, is is hopeful for me, it gives me hope. Because when I'm wavering in this area, right, if there's something in my life that I'm feeling defeated about, and I need to have more faith, and I need to have more willingness and more hope, well, I can take out my old photos, I can look at my pictures, right? And I could say, wow, wait a second, there's a miracle. I know a miracle happened for me, right? Um, I've experienced a miracle of recovery in my life. This miracle gives me hope for all other areas in my life. You know, I think like when there's a problem occurring, I could say, well, wait a second. If I was owned by food, you know, I was over 300 pounds. I I ate till my mouth bled, right? And then all of a sudden, now what happened for me was I cried out for help. And, and I received it. Something happened where I was helped. Well, then I know that miracles exist, right? And that, that further gives me hope for all areas. The more hopeful I feel about God's power, the more willing I am to take actions that I don't like, right? I look to read stories of hope today. I ask people to tell me about their recovery love hearing about people's recovery. I celebrate small demonstrations of hope. You know, I'm a teacher. So I love, you know, when I get to see.
0: Oh, Melissa, you are frozen momentarily. It's a beautiful shot though. If one were gonna freeze, that's definitely a nice one to freeze on. (laughs) We'll just wait till she comes back. We hope she does. Okay, it looks like we just lost her. So we'll wait for her. We'll just wait a minute. I'm sure she's going to pop back on. Uh, We just lost her in the meeting entirely. So we'll just wait for a minute. Would anybody like to perform a dance? Sing a song. Well, I could take this
5: time to bring up uh, real quick our seventh tradition again. And also let you know a little bit more. Um, I can't remember what all Sherry said a while ago, but we do support the world, the WSO. So anything that over our expenses does go to them. and. We try very diligently to be people that work good on being financially frugal. We believe that everybody should have a chance to come to this meeting, but unfortunately, we also need help with the money and we need help with volunteers. Uh, All of us are volunteers that are doing this. Some people had been doing it since opening and they're now backing up so we can use volunteers and you can make any time that's available to you. And we appreciate every one of you that actually come to the meetings and listen to the meetings. Um, So we're thankful for everybody here. So Sherry?
0: Yeah, especially Uh, I'm just actually looking at some of the names and there's some people that are here regularly and it's so lovely that you are. JM, I'm talking to you. (laughs) There's so many wonderful. uh, Service is the secret. That's totally true, isn't it? Oh, here comes Melissa. Okay.
5: We also have somebody from New Zealand today, by the way.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. She is
5: totally new and she is in New Zealand.
0: All right, Melissa, where you be?
5: I found her. Yay! I'm going to ask Yay. you. Oh, you're you're still muted. We'll
0: uh, make you co-host. All right, there
5: we go. There, you're unmuted, Thank you. Melissa.
4: Oh,
3: Welcome problem. back. Okay. So, <laughs> all alrighty. Um, so, I was talking about willingness, and and um, you know, I, I've had in my neighborhood. I think that's where I left off. That. Um, I've had a new neighbor, right, that moved into the neighborhood um, and, um, you know, moved into a house that was an eyesore, right? It was just like one of those houses that was like a, a blight to the neighborhood. And they moved in and they did beautiful things to their home. Those kind of things give me hope. Anything that seems like it's going in one direction and then does the right about And does something else. I I often share with people that I had um, last summer. We had a rotting onion, do you believe? Like a rotting onion in my um, on my in my you know in a bag of onions, right? And and so what happened was we decided to stick it in in some soil (laughs) and grow it. And I'm I'm not kidding. If you saw this uh, onion you wouldn't believe what it looks like now. It it became a flower. It grew, it almost looks like a tropical flower. Those kinds of things give me hope, right? Okay, honesty, right? Well, how does honesty build up my faith? If I'm honest, I'm saying I trust, right? Because being honest, we place ourselves in a very vulnerable position. It's the act of the faithful even saying right at the beginning, I don't believe, right? If, if you're struggling with God and you say, I don't believe, well, you're actually demonstrating faith because you're putting it out there, right? And you know, when a sponsee says at step two that they don't believe in God, I've had this before. Someone says, I don't believe in God. And should I just act, act as if, right? Because I've heard that, like just act as if. And I say like, mm, I don't know, acting as if sounds like you're being dishonest, right? Um, and, and by the way, who are you acting for? Are, are you trying to fool God? Trying to fool me? You're trying to fool yourself, right? None of us are going to be fooled. Um, I say like, don't, don't, don't act as if that's dishonest, right? So I loved And Janet shared earlier her prayer, right? I'm going to repeat it. I think it's powerful. And then I have like a a twist on it, right? So Janet's prayer was, God, I don't know if you're there. And if you are there, I don't know that you care, but if you're there and if you do care, I need help, right? And I have a similar one that's based off hers. And I always tell her like anything great, I take it. (laughs) And I'll reword a couple words, and then I claim it as mine, right? Um, you know. So here's mine. I say, God, I don't know that I believe in you, and and I don't know if you're interested in helping me, but I know others who believe in you. And I usually tell my sponsees, you throw my name in there. You could say, and I met this woman, Melissa, and she swears that you're the real deal. She believes in you. And I don't think she's lying, right? I usually say them, do you think I'm lying? And they say, no, we don't think you're lying. You know, so I say like, okay, then go with that, right? And I say, all right, God, I don't know if you're interested in helping me, but I know others do believe in you and they assure me that you're real and that you've worked miracles in their lives. And I need one of those miracles too. You know, and I I suggest to people pray that one for a while and see if there's a change. I have seen it change people. Miracles do happen. I have witnessed it. You know, I have witnessed people telling me they can't believe what has happened for them. This actually was occurring for someone. She prayed it. She was in the drive-through, in the parking lot, outside of, she was gonna go through the drive-through. She said she prayed that prayer And this is really crazy. She said, she got a text from me right after because, and and she was someone that I was working with who had canceled an appointment. She said, I'm not going to be able to, she gave me some excuse. And I sent her a text back, um, you know, she said this prayer, she was in the drive-through and I sent her a text back, probably maybe like 20 minutes later, she hadn't gone through the drive-through yet. She was still in the parking lot. And I, all I said to her was, are you in trouble? And she said, I can't believe it. I had, just, I had just prayed that prayer that you gave me. So I, I do believe in miracles. I, I've seen it happen, you know? Um, honesty in all areas of my life opens me up and it builds a reserve of faith. When I'm honest with my boss, right? Honest in all areas, my colleagues, my husband, my kids, what I'm saying is I trust you, God with the outcome. I trust you, the outcome is in your hands. And when I'm dishonest, what I'm saying is, I know best. Step aside, I know what's best, right? So this is the act of the faithful. If you wanna grow in faith, be honest. Okay, open-mindedness. The quality of being willing to consider ideas and opinions that are new or different from your own. Being open-minded means admitting that you aren't all knowing, right? (laughs) It means believing that whatever truth you might find always has more to it than you realize. So how do we become more open-minded, right? And many people turn to the set-aside prayer to help them, right? There's the set-aside prayer, God, please help me to set aside everything I think I know about you, everything I think I know about myself, everything I think I know about others, and everything I think I know about my own recovery for a new experience in you, a new experience in myself, a new experience in my fellows, and a much needed new experience in my own recovery right? That's the set aside prayer. And if prayer, by the way, if prayer can't get you to open your mind, we're kind of told, well, then the food might just have to do some more convincing. You know, in We Agnostics on page 48, it says, faced with alcoholic destruction, we soon became as open-minded on spiritual matters as we had tried to be on other questions. In this respect, alcohol was the great persuader. It finally beat us into a state of reasonableness. So for years, I had told you guys before that my mind was wide open to schemes and crazy ideas for weight loss. In fact, the crazier the idea, the more extreme and expensive, the more I was open to try it. My mind was always ready to abandon logic and rational thought in search of a miracle cure. But somehow a miracle from God, that sounded hokey. That sounded made up and was not, and I was not open-minded to that at all. And what convinced me, well, really it was the food. The food did convince me. I was open-minded when I ran out of options, when I had no options left. And I attempted in the beginning to use my intelligence and it failed. It didn't bring me the power that I needed. I opened my mind a bit to consider the spiritual side and I found that the act of humility, of just, right, of opening up my mind, that humbling experience allowed power to rush in and God met me where I was at. And that's been my experience. So how do I keep an open mind? Question yourself about your spiritual beliefs. Investigate new ideas. Ask others how they came to believe. Reach out to different fellows, right, in the rooms. Ask them that question. Try a different prayer practice. Change where you meditate. Try a different meditation. Stop making assumptions and judgments. Here's what I say. Stop saying things like, I would never, I just don't relate to, that's not my thing, right? Those kinds of statements are closed-minded statements. Okay, so the next concept I wanna explore is seeking with delight and with the intention of finding. And step two in the AA 12 and 12, on page 33, it says true humility in the, um and an open mind can lead us to faith. And every AA meeting is an assurance that God will restore us to sanity if we rightly relate ourselves to him. Attending meetings with an investigative spirit, listen to meetings with a pad next to you and write down new ideas. That's what I tell people that I'm working with. I want you to listen to these meetings and write down, right, write down. Call the people who say things that speak to you. Ask questions with true curiosity and not trying to show that you're smart. Cause that's something I used to do. I used to ask a question that really I felt I knew the answer to. And it was, I wanted to prove to you how smart I was. So I don't ask those kinds of questions. You know, when I've asked questions, and sometimes I do them after, you know, like a special edition or a meeting, I've received so many calls from others who have something to offer. Questioning is a deliberate action of someone who's seeking. And this leads us to deepen our faith. I used to tune out the shares I didn't like. If, If I was listening to a meeting and I didn't like the share, I would tune them out. And I find myself sometimes returning to this kind of contempt prior to investigating. And I try to call myself out on this. And I ask God to help me seek, actively seek. I share interesting prayers and podcasts with fellows. And I find I received many of these from my fellows as well. If you put out the energy that you're a seeker, other seekers reach out to you. You find that other people who are also seeking are drawn to you. and We Agnostics, on page 46, it says, God does not make too hard terms with those who seek to him. To us, the realm of the spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding to those who earnestly seek. So when I pray and meditate, I do it with an optimistic spirit. I expect to feel God and I find that I see and feel what I look for, right? I'm gonna tell you, if you go outside and you start looking on the ground for bugs, you find bugs, right? If you uh, look up, I love I love nature, I love I just love nature. So if I'm gonna go outside and I wanna look for birds, I start scanning the trees, you find birds, right? I, I can feel the power of God for me outside in nature. Those are one of the places I can feel it. I look to see new things that appear growing in my garden. I pay attention to the butterflies. I listen for the birds and the frogs. I search for new flowers. I embrace, I'm a second grade teacher. I embrace the second grader in me. I try to be like a second grader um, with childlike enthusiasm. And that helps me see the miraculous hand of God and I wanna do a demonstration with you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna share my screen for this. I think I still have, um, yep, I do. So I'm gonna share my screen and I'm gonna read something because I think it's a good visual. Um, oh, I'm still, I'm not a host now. Maybe you can make me, if possible, host again. I lost my host privileges when I popped in and out.
0: Yeah, and actually I was just trying to do that for some reason it's not giving me that option.
3: Oh no. Uh-huh.
0: Does any any of our other co-hosts can you? I see chat, stop video, remove spotlight, rename, allowed record, and it doesn't say host. What are we doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? <laughs> not necessarily. Can anybody
3: see? You know what?
4: Give me a minute.
3: Can I'll we get just it fixed. is there okay. a way to just Give allow her to screen share even without making her host? Mm. I don't think nope. so nope it says the host disabled participant screen sharing so if you yeah. enable it but that, that's probably harder than
0: mm, you don't
3: know. let me see let me look at that multiple
0: participants can share assignment advanced sharing options let me just see oh okay I you got seen. it
5: you're you now it. co-host so you can now share
0: oh, perfect Fabulous.
3: okay thank you. <laughs> Super. Okay. So here I am. I'm going to share this. All right. So I'm going to read and you know, like I'm a teacher, so I love, I love visual demonstrations. I'm going to read something to you guys and it's in the AA 12 and 12. It's in step two in the AA 12 and 12. It's on the bottom of page 27. It's the bottom paragraph. I'm going to read something to you to sort of demonstrate something. This is only one man's opinion based on his own experience, of course. I must quickly assure you that AAs tread innumerable paths in their quest for faith. If you don't care for the one I've suggested, you'll be sure to discover one that suits you if only you look and listen. Many a man like you has begun to solve the problem of the method of substitution, right? Okay, so I'm just going to say that you will discover one, right? That suits you. And now I'm going to stop sharing. And what I usually say to people when, when when I'm working with them, I have them pick up the book and read it with me. And then I say, okay, great. Now put the book down, which is basically what I just did for you guys. I just put the book down for you. And I ask this question to illustrate. When I read that to you, do you believe that in that paragraph, there were words that had the letter A in it? Do you believe that? I would imagine you do. Well, did you see the letter A? Did you notice the letter A? Did you take stock of the letter A? No, right? No. And you would say to me, well, of course not because I wasn't looking for the letter A. And that's how it is with God. That's how it is with God. If I wanna increase my faith, I need to look at the world with the intention of seeing God. So I usually say to someone who's struggling with their faith, take out a pen and paper, your job, is to find demonstrations that there's the miraculous call it what you like that there's something that's happening there that's bigger than you start recognizing it start calling it out start paying attention to it that helps us to increase our faith okay so further in the aa12 12 and 12 Now on step 12, it says, and I'm not gonna ask you to count the letter A's anymore, so don't worry about it. On page 108 to 109, it says in step 11, we saw that if a higher power had restored us to sanity and had enabled us to live with some peace of mind in a sorely troubled world, then such a higher power was worth knowing better by as direct contact as soon as possible. The persistent use of meditation and prayer, we found did open the channel so that where there had been a trickle, there now was a river, which led to sure power and safe guidance from God as we were increasingly better able to understand him. So I have found that in order to grow my faith, right? My trust in God, then I need to spend time with God. And that's time spent in prayer and meditation. And what it is, is it's giving time to form this trusting relationship. And in practical terms, I I pray by speaking directly to God. I have specific prayers for my children, for my husband, for my coworkers that annoy me, for my mother. Or other people that might be on my resentment list. You know, I have a prayer for COVID-19. How's that? When the pandemic started, I, I had to script a prayer for myself about that. I have a prayer for social justice. You know, I, any situation that fills me with fear, makes me uncomfortable, frustration, you know, or situations where I must go to my loving creator. I you know and what do I do I record myself saying my prayers and then as part of my practice I play these prayers and I try to speak to God as if he was my best friend that's what I say like I need God that's my bestie and my most trusted companion and the one who absolutely has my back and wants the best for us all and when a prayer for me when a prayer becomes too stale or I find I'm saying it without any thought or feeling then I might change it a little bit or I rewrite it entirely and as new problems arise I get a new prayer for it you know remember that that I said in order to grow my faith I was going to like the act of seeking when I'm asked by fellows how can they make sure that they take the time to pray and meditate I suggest that they fall in love with their prayer practice. Fall in love with your meditation practice. I don't believe that prayer should be a chore, an item that I just check off the list, right? Now, when I, because I have to tell you, what I'm looking for is a relationship. And I've had friendships that felt like I was checking them off the list, right? Like they felt like obligations to me. And, um, those weren't friendships that I was able to sustain for the long haul. They weren't, they were based on obligation and not from, from companionship. I want to be able to enjoy my time with my friend. And that's how I feel about God, my friend. You know, um, when I'm struggling with a personal situation, I'll call a friend and we'll pray together. When a fellow calls me with a problem, Prayer is usually the best thing that I can do to help, right? Because I'm not in the, in the business of fixing anybody. Um, so, okay, so now let's talk about having an attitude of tolerance and easygoing acceptance. Because remember, it said that intolerance and belligerent denial can keep us from building up a reserve of faith. So if I wanna increase my faith, then I'll need to trust God with the management of others. I have to strengthen myself by not paying such close attention to every little feeling of discomfort. I can learn to tolerate others' ideas and perspectives and accept that different people do things differently. I have to get a little thicker skinned. That's what I say, I need a thicker skin. I can accept that I'm not going to get my way most of the time, even if my way is the right way, right? My solution has to be, I have to be less attached to my way. I actually say, I have to stop having a way. That's really what it is. I have to like release myself of that burden um, I have to trust the outcome to God. And the more I do that, the more my faith grows. You know, a couple, and you know, a number of years ago, I had a pretty serious family crisis. And the fact that I didn't think about eating once during or after that crisis is nothing short of a miracle, really. But the greatest miracle was that in the midst of this crisis, like for me, what happened was I was driving behind an ambulance, right? My daughter was in the ambulance being taken to a hospital. And I was driving in like the worst storm I've ever driven in. And I'm afraid of driving in storms like that. It was a hard day for me. There was lightning all around me. I was really sad. I was not, it was not a good day. In the life of Melissa C, it was not a stellar day. Um, I felt like I was able to tolerate my emotions though. Even though I was in pain, I was intensely sad and yet I was able to accept the circumstances. I even remember feeling at one point like God was right there in the car. You know, I was crying and that in that moment I was actually sobbing. And I heard myself say out loud to God, "Um, I don't like this right? That's what I said to God. I don't like this at all. I am really sad and I'm unhappy and I'm angry. I don't like your plan. I hate your plan, but I trust your plan. You know, and even like I say, like, even when I say this now, like I get welled up because what happened when I verbalized it, when I said it, I got this comfort. It flooded over me. I just felt God's comfort. And I realized in that moment, like crazy thing was, I was like, here I was, I was driving. I had my food packed in a cooler for the day because I knew I was walking into a hard day, right? Here I am, I'm driving in the car and I knew that I was grateful that I had a food problem at that point. I actually was happy that I was a compulsive overeater because I never would have had a relationship with God at that moment, when I really needed a relationship with God at that moment. I was able, because of this disease, I was able to access something that was able to sustain me during a very hard time. My faith actually increased in God during the crisis because I was reminded that what seems like the worst thing in the world for me before that was morbid obesity. Right? You would have asked me, I would have told you morbid obesity is the worst thing in the world. Turned out to be a beautiful gift. How's that? That being morbidly obese at one point was a beautiful present that was wrapped in really ugly wrapping paper. (laughs) That's how I word it. Um, And so what, what it told me was in that moment, maybe this experience will also be like that for me. Maybe this will be a beautiful experience at some point, right? By the way, everything turned out well, as well as it can be till the next crisis, because that's life till the next crisis, right? So, okay, so I've spoken a lot about faith and I realized like, whoa, we're almost out of time. And, um, And I wanna talk about strengthening spirituality because that's really what this is. Why are we focusing on strengthening spirituality? Why do I have to strengthen it? Can I just maintain it, right? No, (laughs) it tells us into action that if we let up on the spiritual program of action and we rest on our laurels, we're headed, right? We're headed for a fall. So of course with us, easy is not better. It's hard to maintain, you know, is it hard to maintain uh, being committed to the spiritual program of action? It can be. If you don't completely give yourself over to this way of life, if I rest on my laurels, if I sit back, start taking credit for my good results, then I will not continue to enjoy the good results. You know, remember our disease is progressive. So my solution must be, right? What is spirituality then? What is it, right? Spirituality is the divine mystery of life how one feels a part of something greater. That's really what this is. Spirituality is also defined as deep values and meanings by which people live. You know, And for us, there's another meaning to spirituality. It's the process of awakening from the ordinary. We get woken up from what was ordinary. Spirituality can also mean the process of making the mind free from fears, worries, and nonstop thinking and experiencing inner peace and bliss in one's everyday life, right? I like to define spirituality like this, very basic. If faith is my internal belief, then spirituality is the external demonstration of that belief. Spirituality is what I do Right. If my belief is that I'm now in the world to play the role God assigns me, which for us is to help other compulsive overeaters, then spirituality means going out and being useful, right? To grow my spirituality, I do this. This grows my spirituality. You know, returning calls, working with newcomers, helping long timers reignite their passion. I strengthen my spirituality like this. You know, to strengthen my spirituality, I don't argue and find fault with others, especially in situations where it's tempting to get my voice heard. I need to refrain from pointing out that I'm entitled to get my voice heard. It reminds me, you know, of a common 11 step prayer and meditation, which we do in St. Francis prayer. I don't need to seek to be heard, loved or understood. In fact, my spiritual path demands I do the listening, the loving, and the understanding. You know, the. um, When I take a third step with someone, a spiritual action of taking a third step with someone, I can feel my strength spirituality i feel it strengthen you know spirituality strengthens through sponsorship and helping particularly when i give up my free time you know in the in the in the chapter of the family afterwards on page 129 it says he will perceive that his spiritual growth is lopsided for that an average man like himself a spiritual life which does not include his family obligations, may not be so perfect after all. So I strengthen my spirituality when I meet my family's obligations, right? Um, If your family is being horribly neglected and uncared for, then your spiritual growth is lopsided. Sometimes, sometimes I have to turn off my phone and tend to the needs of my family. That's the truth, you know? Spirituality is actions taken in a recovered community. It's not a solitary endeavor. We don't do this alone. We're told that doing it alone is dangerous, actually. It's very dangerous for us. You know, there's a reason, by the way, that I could not recover alone because we were never meant to do it alone. Human beings are social animals. It's the way our creator made us. I always tell people, we're not cats. We're not snakes or spiders. We're people meant to live in community. Remember when I shared with you in my early marriage that that I like would cut my husband off, that my fidelity was to food? That is not living a spiritual life. Spiritual life means that I'm not living in isolation. Spiritual strengthening is a shared endeavor, right? And so when you want to grow spiritually, you share the endeavor. And hopefully, we've all grown spiritually together today, sharing this endeavor. And with that, I will pass.
0: Thank you so much, Melissa. Great, great, great session. Thank you for being our speaker today. It was so wonderful to have you with us. We appreciate you sharing your experience strength and hope while giving service to the OA program. Together as you said we get better. The opinions expressed here today are those of individual OA members who do not rep- sorry and do not represent OA as a whole. Please remember to honor our commitment to each other's anonymity. Take the stories but leave the names behind. OA Rise's goal is twofold. One goal is to provide speaker meetings and recordings to support OA members. The second goal is to support the World Service Office, so we will post the Seventh Tradition contribution information once again. Please give what you are able so that we can continue to keep OARISE going. Uh, Lastly, once again, OARISE is always looking for members to do service. We are looking for members to be speakers or perhaps provide speaker suggestions as well as members who would be interested in joining our committee. We also need volunteers who would occasionally be available to help us with Zoom during the meetings. If you're willing to be of service, please send a message to one of the co-hosts. We would love to have you. We're a pretty fun team. Uh, Thank you everyone for being with us today. After we close the meeting, we will open up the chat just for a few minutes. We'll let you unmute yourself so you can connect with each other. And please join us for another wonderful share of experience, strength and hope at our next speaker meeting, which will be June 20th, where our topic will be a journey through the steps. We hope to see you all there. After a moment of silence, we will close the meeting with the serenity prayer. I will speak it aloud and I invite those to who will join me uh, silently. Actually, I'd prefer it if I could um, let Melissa. Melissa, would you mind... Um, Sorry, I think we still have you spotlighted too. <laughs> I don't know if people could hear me or see me. Um, would you be able to do the, the prayer for us, please, the serenity prayer?
3: Of course. Thank you. Moment to think of the still sick and suffering compulsive overeater. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. I will not mine be done.
0: Thank you so much. Okay, we will open
5: up the chat. And we are stopping the recording.
0: Great, thank you. Okay, people can unmute themselves if you wanted to talk to each other. We're gonna open up that as well.